Good morning, Compass. So last week, I was off camping because it was Fallon's first adoption birthday, and that's absolutely what she wanted to do. So we go camping, we go hiking, it's a great day, and then, you know, when you're an adult, and it's really early, it just got dark, and you're laying in the tent, it's much earlier than when you go to bed. So I pop up my phone, I'd just gotten my emails down to like zero, and so I just was like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, get rid of some of these emails, and then I click, and I'm like, oh man, that 40% off sale, for those things I've really been wanting, I'm totally gonna order them. Five minutes later, I had ordered this sweatsuit from this place, and then I'm sitting there thinking, gross. <laughs> I'm camping, and I just answered an email ad. But we've all kind of, I think, I hope, <laughs> experienced things like that, where you order something online, and then right after you get the, you get the message, it's like, hey, how was your new pair of jeans? Have you seen this other stuff that we make? You know, or like, even when I was looking up some Sabbath books or um, some different things for church, it'll be like, hey, you know, that little bar at the bottom that's like, others who bought this also bought this, and there's like 15 more books on Sabbath, you know, and I'm clicking through like, should we have gotten these? And so we just live in this really kind of strange time where we have this, we have rampant materialism, we have um, almost just like this capitalization of, of human depravity, like, oh, hey, when you're bored, like, spend some money. Um, and at a very young age, we're taught to want more. So even this week, I, I don't even know what store it was, but um, some mail came that had like this magazine of like all the Christmas toys, you know? So all day Friday, we either Fletcher or Fallon, Meg, Meg, look at this. I want that one for my birthday. I want this for Christmas. Look, I have this. And so even at a really young age, we're taught like, oh yeah, I have this, but look, they have this other cool thing that I also want. So the question is, is there a way that we can kind of index our hearts back to where they need to be, almost like a big reset button? And of course, the answer is Sabbath. We are, this after today, we'll be halfway through our six-week series on Sabbath. And last week, Mark did an amazing job um, of talking about Sabbath as rhythm of six days on and one day off. And in this world of work more, buy more, repeat, we put ourselves in a much better rhythm. So today we're not talking about Sabbath as rhythm, we're talking about Sabbath as resistance. So big disclaimer, giving credit where it's due. Um, John Mark Homer did an amazing talk on Sabbath as resistance where almost all the material from today have come from. It's also mostly in his new book. It came out this week and I was thumbing through and I was like, man, these slides look really familiar. <laughs> so if you're interested in even more, pick up this book. But um, today we'll be in Exodus 20 verses eight through 11. And if you grew up in church, probably even more so in the Adventist church, you might have this to memory, but probably in the King James version. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So note, there's kind of two commands here. One is six days of work. 
And the second is one day of rest, work and rest. We need both of those things. They go hand in hand. So a lot of us need to hear the invitation to rest. Some of us need, may need to hear the invitation to work. Culturally, the habit is kind of like grind your soul into the ground and then become a little bit more machine than human. But rest is really good. But if your life is all rest, it starts to lose its meaning. So maybe you're retired recently, or maybe you're a mom whose kids have now gone to school, and you're like, what do I do with this time now? Or maybe you're trying to figure out the next thing coming off disability, and you're trying to gain some momentum. In Deuteronomy 5, um, it's the last book in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And interestingly enough, the Deuteronomy was written 40 years after Exodus, And so it's written between these two generations. So Exodus is written to mom and dad. They just got out of slavery and the Ten Commandments were given to Moses to remind God's people of this ancient rhythm of the universe that they hadn't been able to practice in Egypt. This ancient rhythm of rest. But then Deuteronomy is written to mom and dad's kids as they're about to go into the promised land. They have no felt experience of slavery and they're on the edge of paradise kind of about to become um, the leader And this is what it says. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So there's two kind of small differences. Did you catch them? The first one is instead of the word remember, it begins and ends with the word observe. And in the Hebrew, that word is shamar means to keep watch, to watch over, Um, meant to be kind of this weekly holiday. It also means, if you look at observe, it also has this this meaning of obedience. So we observe the speed limit, some of us, and we observe the law. We, we, um, so there's this kind of piece of obedience in the Kaddish, Kaddish, which is the Hebrew liturgy for Sabbath that, um, devout Hebrews families do to this day. On Friday night, the mom lights the two candles and asks the children, what do these two candles represent? And the children respond, remember and observe. The second thing that's different is the line, as you do. So it talks about, it gives you the whole huge list of people that aren't supposed to work. And then it says, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do, just like you. Remember, you used to be slaves. You used to be them. So give them a break too. Yahweh gave you rest. You give them rest. So it's the same command, uh, remember, observe, but for a different reason, different motivation. The first is pointing back to this ancient rhythm of rest. It's restoring um, 
It's restoring the Israelites back into this old rhythm and it's grounded in creation and in delight in this life-giving art form to celebrate. And then we have the second command in Deuteronomy and it's more of resistance. It's more, it's grounded in the Exodus and it's giving a warning. It's saying, as we go into this new land, as we become the people who are about to be in charge, remember that you need to take a break and you need to give the people around you a break. It's kind of this punk rock protest against the grind. Resistance reminding them, do not get sucked back in. As we look back on the story of the children of Israel and Egypt, it's all about work. Pharaoh is this ruthless tyrant, and whatever Israel does, it's never enough. Remember, he's like taking straw, more bricks, and less time. Egypt is all about scarcity and needing more. You know, the Egyptians needed pyramids for their stuff when they died, grain houses for the extra grain when they're alive, extra palaces for all their extra stuff. And it was all built on the back of slaves. So to get rich, you need the cheap labor to do the work while you rest. And at that time in history, slavery was the way to go. We know that in our nation. It's the way that we began. And slaves don't get a Sabbath. They're a commodity and their value is in what they produce, not in who they are. So when Israel finally gets that rest, that rest is from God. They are set free not only from Pharaoh, but from Pharaoh's culture. From the false gods of empire and into this new system, a new socioeconomic system. So the command is to remember that you're slaves in Egypt. One, you're not slaves anymore. You're not in Egypt. You don't have a quota. You're under a new kingdom and a new king. There's no taskmaster. And two, coming right along with it, and something that was kind of new to me, is reminding Israel that you're not the slave drivers. All throughout history, we just see the oppressed often become the oppressor. It's the pattern of humanity. And so what the command is, not your son or your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your manservant, nor your ox, nor your donkey. This list is even longer in Deuteronomy. It's not just animals. It's like all the specific animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Israel used to be the servant. They used to be the immigrant. And now they're dominant. This idea was social justice way, way, way ahead of its time. Everyone gets a Sabbath, not just the rich, not just Pharaoh and his friends, not just the powerful, everyone, even the animals and the plants get rest. Three, it's reminding them to remember that they are image bearers of God. Sabbath is a weekly reminder of our identity, setting us apart from the rest. There's a saying goes, that goes, the Israel kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath kept Israel. Whatever your thoughts are about modern Israel, their existence is a miracle. They um, went for 2,000 years. There's no other record in history of an ethnic group going 2,000 years with a culture intact, with no land and no government. And not assimilating into the host culture. When we were in, um, when we were in 
Israel last year, I was amazed, and I guess for some reason I had never thought about it, but when Israel became a country, um, Jews from all over Europe and all over the world flocked back to Israel, and when you're there, there's like the Russian version of the hair. There's the this version, because for thousands of years, they basically practiced their customs and their culture in different countries and came back to Israel. One of the huge reasons that experts look to at how they survived is they point to Sabbath. They can't work on Sabbath. They can only walk a short distance on Sabbath. And so everyone had to live in the same area. They ha- it kept their community intact. Can you imagine that if we all lived within a fourth of the, a mile from this building? How, cl- how tight-knit it would make us, how close it would make us. In exile, it was the Sabbath that kept Daniel and his friends from getting sucked into the next big empire of Babylon. Sabbath has done that for Israel time and time again, from Babylon to the Third Reich. The Sabbath tells a subversive story. Egypt, Babylon, Nazi Germany, it's a story that says no matter what you do to us, we are image bearers. We are who we are loved by, not by what we do. We're not slaves. We're not subhuman. Sabbath was and still is a line in the sand, a way of saying we will never go back no matter where we are. And I would argue that we need this line, this practice more than ever. Pharaoh is alive and so is his system. The bad news is, guess who it is today? It's us. Like it or not, the global economic system in which America is the driving engine is set up very much like Egypt, like a pyramid. The pyramid has always been a symbol of empire. If you look up, just Google global wealth pyramid, you will get this image of a pyramid that has, on the bottom half, we have 73.8. 2% of humanity. Larry, do we have that or Mark? Oh yeah. We have 73.2% of humanity living on under less than $10,000 a year. At the top is this tiny less than 1% that makes a million dollars every year. And then most of us are at least somewhere in the top half. The 18.5% that make anywhere from 10000 to 100000 a year. Some of us might even be in the top 7.5% making over $100,000 a year. And that's the thing about Egypt. It's horrific if you're the slave, but it's really not that bad if you're on the top. The people at the bottom are often the people that make our iPhones and our shoes and our T-shirts and our clothes. And it's not to make us feel, not trying to make anyone feel guilty. It's easy to post about human trafficking and the huge slave trade now, but then our homes are full of Amazon.com packages. But we're probably not made with full-on human trafficking, but at least with injustice. I know I ordered three things from Amazon this week. We want to believe that slavery is done, but it's not. Some of the estimates are that there are up to 28 million slaves today. 
And that's depending on who you read, twice as many as were trafficked in the slave trade that our country was built on. That's not a guilt trip. It's a reality check that this is not a thing from the distant past. This is the world that we live in today because Egypt never really goes away. You have to remember at the beginning of the Bible, Egypt is kind of an archetype. And so I, I don't know about you, but um, growing up in church, kind of Babylon is like this metaphor for like the depravity of society, you know, like a bad moral code. Oh, no, you know, Babylon is bad. Don't get involved in Babylon. But often um, a new thought for me is that maybe it's not just about morality. Egypt, Babylon, the big empires through time also symbolize an economic system and even more than that, a spirituality. A culture built around values of money, prosperity, and finding meaning in more. We live in in that culture today, this culture of restlessness where just like Egypt, we have this unquenchable, insatiable lust for more. Here in the U.S., we work more than ever before. We work more hours than any nation in the world. And when technology was on the rise, there was like this subcommittee under Nixon as technology was, was coming up. And they predicted, I think it was, when was Nixon president? 60s, 70s? So they predicted that by 1988, the year I was born, that um, Americans would be working like 22 hours a week and that the main problem in America would be leisure. Like, what are we going to do with all of these leisurely people um, because we've made all this stuff and like they don't need it? So they assumed which kind of made sense. They assumed that, hey, if we can produce something that used to take, you know, a day to make and we can produce 10 of them in a day, people just won't need as much, we won't have as much demand and we'll just relax. But leisure is down 37% since the 60s. Lori Santos um, has this class, I think it's online now from Yale about happiness. And one of her big lines from that is, most people spend time to get money, but happy people spend money to get time. But that is counter culture, particularly for the middle class and up. Some of that is because so-called labor-saving devices have actually um, made work a little bit worse. They've given a lot of great things, but really we just have work in our back pocket. You know, you can check your emails while camping. I don't know who would do that, but you can. <laughs> and technology, it's really done some incredible things, but each generation has the, their blind spot, and I think digital addiction is, is definitely one of ours. And the point is not to slam technology, but we work more than ever before. We have more than ever before, and we know the stats, like 4% of the world population is the United States, but we're 22% of the world economy. Um, they say that it would take four to six Earths, depending on who you read, to sustain the world population that consumed at the level that we do. Um, for all the talk about you know, the disappearing middle class, which is like really a thing, um, but since 1950, the per capita average income of Americans has tripled. After World War II, there was this um, big shift in thinking of Americans as workers. Um, that's where kind of like the whole madman advertising thing came from is like, hey, we have all these factories from the war. Um, people don't need all this stuff. Like, how can we convince them that they need it? And so they made advertising that told us um, that we're not here to contribute, we're here to consume. 
And so most conservative es estimates say that um, we spend twice as much on consumer goods since the 40s and 50s, but other numbers say as many as 10 times as much on consumer goods. Um, the stats on storage are also pretty crazy. Like there are 2.3 billion feet of storage space in the U.S., which is 7.3 square feet per person. So we shouldn't have anyone homeless. They could just live in our storage units. Um, the point is that Pharaoh is alive and well. It never really goes away. We work more, we buy more, but in spite of that, we are unhappier than ever. Sociologists all tell the story that happiness levels have just like plummeted since the 1950s, um, which is kind of when that big shift happened, when we were kind of made to be consumers. Um, and interestingly enough is when um, Sabbath, Sunday Sabbath, in, um, kind of began to decline. Um, materialism could be coincidence, could just be part of getting busy, um, but happiness has just been going down since the 50s. Materialism's been on the rise. $250 billion were spent last year on antidepressants. It's the second highest drug in the U.S. And even with that, we still have 45,000 suicides a year. It's a leading cause of death among, second leading cause of death of teens and 20-somethings is suicide. Mental illness is exploding. 39% of Americans said that they were more anxious than they were a year ago. Psychologists say that anxiety is the canary in the coal mine, the sign that something in our system is off and that we need to fix it before there's trouble. The rising unhappiness in America is a really complex story. There's no one root cause. Many things have changed. Um, we eat differently. Our work is less meaningful. Um, technology is on the rise. Consumers, and there's lots and lots of reasons that we could say our happiness is declining. But in our hyper-materialistic culture, there is more to life than accomplishment and accumulation. It's Egypt all over again, and often we're swept right up with the ideas. It's easy to really assimilate into this culture that we live in whose values are radically different than the way of Jesus. And it's easy to feel powerless against it. I have to work those extra hours to make it in my career. I have to check those emails over the weekend. I have to reach this certain standard of living. I have to say yes to that promotion. I have to have more outfits or jeans or whatever. I think um, back in like the 20s or the 40s, the average um, woman had like nine outfits, I think, and now the average is 31. Um, you have to say yes to our teen getting shopping money or iPhone or we got to miss, miss church and do this to go to the soccer game or for the third grader. <laughs> um, no shame or guilt. It's just that it's easy to get sucked in. But Sabbath is an act of resistance. It's a line in the sand. It's a shot across the bow. It's an act of insurgency. It's a rebellion against Egypt and its system. It's a way to say in love enough. Work is a good thing. It matters to God. It matters to us. But it is not the thing. It is not the end all be all. You, we are not what we do. We are who we are loved by. And Sabbath is a way to break our addiction, one, to accomplishment. Especially, it's especially this hard practice for um, workaholic or type A. If you love your career, you're just a doer. Sabbath is so hard at first. 
You might feel like a drug addict coming off, but you'll learn to love it. And it's the same, it's also a way to say enough to accumulation. Enough stuff, stuff isn't bad, but do we really need more of it? Do we really need another set of Legos, another pair of shoes, another book, the three camera iPhone? Do we really need that right now? Sabbath is a way to break our addiction, and I think for a lot of us, that's really what it is, to accumulation. In the Torah, this was interesting to me, because I hadn't really realized it, but there is actually no command to not go shopping on the Sabbath, but this is a non-digital society, Um, so shopping was more of a trade, which meant that it was very connected to work. Um, So the best practice that came out of the command not to work on the Sabbath was basically that all shopping was against the law. So that's always been true in Jewish culture. And even up through the 90s, blue laws were on the books. And in certain states, you still can't buy liquor or cars on Sunday. I don't know why those two were decided to be the worst things to shop for on Sabbath, but um, or on what America considered Sabbath. Many of us grew up in an Adventist culture, so like not shopping has probably at least been on your radar before. Um, and at least if you're like me, some of the reasons were really confusing. Like I remember, like we had Pollock today, right? Chances are one of us forgot something, you know? And I remember like as a kid, it was like, so do you go to Walmart and get the thing you forgot for potluck? Or do you just not? Like, what's the, like, you, it was like a new moral dilemma, you know? Or you'd go, you listen to, like, Aunt Sue and Uncle Dan stories about, like, being stuck in the desert. And they, you know, they, they didn't have gas. And they were so stressed. And then, like, magically they had gas. And it was this moral dilemma. And I just remember thinking, like, wasn't it more stressful not to wait for the gas and just get gas? But not passing judgment on any of those things. What I'm saying is that for me, the reason behind not shopping was a little bit vague and to be honest, not very motivating. But what started making sense to me is this act of resistance. The act of looking at my life intentionally, stepping back and thinking like, man, if I'm so busy that I can't grab my things the day before, or if I'm about to run out of gas because I was so busy not to notice, maybe I need to slow down. Or like with the camping story, like I literally bought something from an email ad. Maybe I have a problem with a digital addiction and accumulation. And Sabbath would be a really good practice for me to intentionally push back against the way that culture has affected me. I don't think God's like up there in the sky or all around us picking at the ways that we practice Sabbath. And it sounds like um, Mark did an excellent job talking about the different stages of life and cultural moments and how we all are going to prepare differently, how Sabbath is going to look differently for each of us. It's okay to experiment, to see what works. It's okay to try something and see how it sits with you. What may be so restful and so nice for some people may be a terrible idea for others. So what would it be like to set aside all of those things for a day? To experiment, not maybe with like some weird legalism from your childhood, but to think, wow, this is the water I'm swimming in. Like I am so busy. My life is so hurried. This is the air that I breathe and I don't even realize it. Let me take a day. 
What kinds of things would be helpful for me to practice to index my heart away from slavery and greed and discontentment and restlessness and materialism of our culture and into the freedom and gratitude and contentment of, and restfulness of the kingdom of God? Sabbath is a practice to that end. Accomplishment and accumulation can be good, but there is a limit, and at some point, you just have to say no. No more. I don't have to work more. I don't have to move up. I don't need another bay in my garage or another pair of shoes or a night out or the perfect grade. I don't need to earn my father's love. I don't need another stamp in my passport. I don't need to be younger or more beautiful or have flatter abs. I don't need to have my kids in soccer and ballet and taekwondo and adventures. <laughs> I don't need to make everybody happy. I don't need to be liked by everyone. I don't even need to get everything that I want to be happy. We are free. We live in a different kingdom under a different king. And Sabbath is not only an act of resistance against Pharaoh and his system, but an act of alignment with God and his. It's not just for us. It's for others. A.J. Sabora, Sabora, he um, wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath that we'll be talking about in a few weeks, but he calls Sabbath scheduled social justice. This command is way ahead of its time. Neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant, not even your animals, all of them are to rest as you do. That last line um, that a lot of us skip over is really radical, absolute equality of rest. Walter Brueggemann has this book that um, a lot of this information came from, called Sabbath is Resistance, and he has this excellent quote. It says, not all equal in production. Not all are equal in production. Some perform much more efficiently than others. Not all are equal in consumption. Some have access to more consumer goods. In a society defined by production and consumption, there are, hu there is, are huge gradation of performance and therefore of worth and significance. In such a social system, everyone is coerced to perform better, produce more, consume more, to be a good shopper. Such valuing, of course, creates haves and have-nots, significant and insignificant, rich and poor, people with access and people denied access. Sabbath breaks the pattern of coercion. All, like you, equal. Equal work, equal value, equal ac access. Sabbath is for you, first of all. It's a form of resistance that indexes your heart back to the things that truly matter. To be in the moment with yourself, with your family and friends, and with God. To set aside accomplishing and accumulating to just be. To rest in who you are loved by rather than what you do to contribute. But more than that, your practice of Sabbath is also for others. A way of saying, I don't expect people to work for me so that I can have the life that I want. With our global economy, it's hard to see how our individual actions can have an impact. But at the very least, it's an act of recognition and of gratitude for what we have. It's a way of representing the way of Jesus to others in a culture defined by hurry. Sometimes Sabbath is as simple as asking 
in what ways is my lifestyle, my closet, or even my practice of Sabbath forcing other people to work in ways that do not have rest and justice? It might, not, it might look like you take a day to begin to fight the system, or instead of shop, you stop and delight in what you already have. Our practice for the coming week, we have books in the back. Um, if you want to pick one up on your way out, um, if you don't have one or if you lost it, feel free to get another one. Um, but the idea is that you kind of build on your Sabbath each week. So each practice, you kind of try something different. And if you want, just refrain for a day and don't buy anything. But more than that, focus the attention of your heart on what you have rather than what you want or what you don't have. Focus on the things that money can't buy, the things that really matter, such as family and friends or the simple pleasures of a sunrise or a walk or simple gratitude. And if this sounds like legalism to you, I'm so sorry. That's not the intent in any way. I really encourage you not to run from that feeling. If it's coming up, just stay open to it. I know in our group, we have people all across the board in their experience of Sabbath. People that um, Sabbath was like set to this perfectionistic standard, and it's really hard to see how you can even think about meeting it. Some who grew up and loved it and just want to go back to kind of what they used to do and what they remember. People who are busy and welcome the idea of kind of working with a group and experimenting with what you might try. We have people who've never really practiced Sabbath and are looking to change their work schedule so they can have a more full Sabbath. So please talk about it with the group. We have like, I think, three meeting now um, before church. We have a couple of others during the week. Um, or just talk with a friend or a spouse or a family member and sort it out. We're adopting this teaching and this, these set of practices from a church where most of the people in the church have never really thought about practicing Sabbath. And so um, they have a certain advantage in, that, um, in approaching Sabbath with less baggage there's a high chance that many of us grew up with some form of Sabbath, and it might have been great or it might have been terrible. So please explore your reactions, talk about them, experiment with different things, and most importantly, ask the Holy Spirit how he would have you approach Sabbath. And don't be afraid to try things. There's this one more great quote by Walter Brueggemann. It says, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. When you Sabbath well, you will live well, and those close within your orbit will notice. Jesus, we thank you for practicing Sabbath, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us to practice it as you would have us to. We thank you for this opportunity, this rhythm of life that you've given us, of rest and restoration, and to experience your love in just a little bit of a different way. We thank you for giving us um, tools to resist um, the water we swim in, the culture we live in, Lord. And we just ask that um, you would teach us gratitude, that you would teach us um, to be the kind of people that spend money to get time instead of spend time to get money, that we would be people of love, that we would take the time um, to slow down and and really rest in you. We thank you for that in your name. Amen.